Alrighty, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 10 through 12 in the Red Bible, Pew Bible. It's on page 810. God's word says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds uh, <laughs> utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for all your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. We are in a section in the Bible where Jesus is discussing what does it mean to have a blessed life? What does it mean to have ultimate happiness and satisfaction in life? Uh, people have problems with the Beatitudes where we're in right now because they're paradoxical. They don't make sense to the world that we live in. I mean, for instance, Jesus says things like this. You are rich when you are poor. You are happy when you are mourning. And blessing is on you, in our text, when you are persecuted. Jesus calls, to, calls us to live a life that is completely different from this kingdom that we're in. His kingdom has everlasting joy and satisfaction. And tonight we're going to be talking, and my message is titled, Rejoice When You Are Mocked. Meet Roy. When he was 15, he had a group of students, he and a group of students were attacked by a Muslim mob. Instead of renouncing his faith, the young Indonesian boldly declared, I am a soldier of God, ready to die for Christ. That was the last word he, the last word he said was Jesus. Or meet May, a 19-year-old who had been a Christian for barely two months when a communist guard in her uh, country approached her, pointing a gun to her head and said, if you continue to be a Christian, I will kill you now. May replied, you can kill my body, but not my spirit. Or meet Gulnar, a Muslim background believer, is a part of a Uyghur ethnic group in western China, which experiences the worst persecution in their country. Her husband was imprisoned for his faith in 2009 and left her to raise her boys, and she has not seen him yet. Here's what she says. We have joy real joy. The joy in this difficult situation is real joy. It must be joy from the Lord. Otherwise, how could we endure the hardship? How do these three people maintain joy in the midst of peril in their life? How do they hold fast to God when it seems like everything else is falling apart in their life? My message today is I want to take these feeble words of mine and use them to perform the miracle of Matthew 5, 12. I want to perform this miracle because it truly is a miracle to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That is a miracle that God has. Pastor John Piper calls this a miracle. He says, and I agree with him because it's not normal to face torment and feel joy. It's not natural to react to difficult situations with gladness when you're reviled and persecuted and slandered for Jesus Christ's sake. So how do we rejoice when we are mocked? The first thing we need to do is understand the definition of persecution. Let's understand what persecution means and do we face it in America. 
Now, using this word persecution in America has always made me a bit jittery. I've said in the past, and I can remember specifically in youth group, that we should never say that we are being persecuted because how can we say that compared to what other people are facing in Asia and Africa and the Middle East who face church bombings and imprisonment and physical violence? We're not being ripped from our homes for our faith. We're not being forced to recant our faith or die. I've always been hesitant because I also didn't want to join the victimization culture who cries foul at every perceived justice in American society. And I I didn't want to join that, again, looking to our other brothers and sisters in Christ in different parts of the country. If persecution primarily means that someone is threatening your life, then yes, we don't face it in the country. But upon further review for this message, um, the word for persecution has a broad semantic uh, range. Standard Bible dictionaries describe persecution in various ways, from official widespread government programs to informal mistreatment by individuals from executions and mob killings to ostracism and insults. In several places in the New Testament, persecution refers to violence. Matthew 10, uh, 21 and 23 speaks of family members killing one another. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 49, refers to persecution and killing uh, together. But in our text, I want you to notice that persecution is not limited to only acts of violence. Jesus promises those who are persecuted will be blessed in verse 10. And then look at verse 11. He says um, there, sorry, let me, he says there, those that utter all kinds of evil against you, they revile you. In verse 12, Jesus goes on to say the prevailing persecution is uttering is what the prophets who came before you face. Now we know not all of the prophets were beaten to death. Two other passages give us a broad understanding of persecution. Don't turn there, but I'll read it to you quickly. John 15, 20 says this. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He clearly states that all, notice, all who follow him will face persecution. Because if they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, not the few, all. Not if you're a Muslim-majority country, all. So coming to this understanding, it helped me understand that this is the case. No, we may not face physical destruction, but we can face slander and insults, family shame and mocking and scorn, unjust laws, hatred and ostracism. We are faithful followers of Christ. We're going to face it in America. Just recently, a gym teacher in Loudoun County, Virginia, his name is Tanner Cross, and he's an elementary gym teacher. The new school policy required teachers to refer to their students by their preferred gender pronouns. Here's what he said. I'm speaking out of love for those who suffer from gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is where someone is struggling with their biological gender, and when they perceive they want to be said another gender. He said this, I love all my students, but I never will lie to them, regardless of the consequences. 
I'm a teacher and I serve God first. Cross also mentioned the 60 Minutes report about young people who started transitioning but later regretted it. In fact, in England, if I'm not mistaken, uh, now you have to be 18 in order to get consent to do the gender transition surgery. Usually you could do it even as a teen on your own without parental consent. What did the school board do because he said this? They punished him. They fired him because they found his speech hurtful. If schools are supposed to be a place where tolerance is accepted, they must tolerate the views of other people, Cross said. Does not, he doesn't believe that people should be, views should be forced on them. Now, again, we might not face the violence per se, but there is things that we are going to face in America. Now, why are we persecuted? This is what God's word said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Or verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus in his sermon is per- on the mount is preparing his followers to live under Roman rule. You see, the Romans had conquered land that stretched from Germany to North Africa, from Spain to Syria. And the challenge for this empire was they had to unite all the people together. People with various languages, various customs, various religions, and they had to try to assimilate them into culture. But the thing is, to fully assimilate them and make them Romans would have been too costly and too bloody. So one of the things they tried to do to assimilate all the people was to have a unifying principle. And this unifying principle would be the emperor. What they were asking, because most of the people came from religions that were polytheistic, was to worship the emperor, add him to your list of gods, and that would declare your loyalty. They wanted every citizen to sacrifice to him as if he was divine and declare loyalty to him. But the Christians refused to do this. They only serve one true God, one true king, one true ruler, and this unwillingness added to add a small element to their worship made them unfaithful. And they were going to face persecution. Notice, it says that we are persecuted. It's not on our account. It's not our suffering. It's not because of our personal convictions or our conscience or our ordinary troubles. It's mistreatment on Christ's account or because of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is right standing with God. Righteousness is the opposite of sin. To sin means to miss the mark of God, and righteousness means to hit this target. We declare when we're living righteously that Jesus Christ is our king. He is our everything. Christ is my whole world, and it's built all around him. The early Christians did this, and that's why they faced Christians. They would face mistreatment. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Christians are persecuted for the sake of righteousness because of their loyalty to Christ. And another author writes, a true Christian ought to be a standing rebuke to the world, an incarnate conscience. A righteous life will be persecuted. Matthew 10, 24 says this, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master But if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign these of his household? 
Jesus right here in this passage is called the prince of demons. What do you think they're going to call you and I? You see, we need to understand that living a life devoted to God is going to cost us. We may be reviled. We may be spoken against. If you walk humbly with God, you expose the evil pride and arrogance. If you value purity in your relationships, your life is a rebuke on people who love sexual immorality. If you speak with gentleness and patience, you will embarrass the harsh and the intolerant. May our lives be a rebuke to the world. If you live simply and happily, you will show the foolishness of luxury and extravagance. If you forgive others as Christ forgive you and dismantle this notion of cancel culture, people will despise you. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict pagan living. Our lives must be a rebuke to this world. If you're earnest, you will make the flippant look flippant instead. If you're spiritually minded, you expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. If you are kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you, you demonstrate to the world that there's no place for bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and filthy speaking. Our lives must be a rebuke to the world. Notice again, they are persecuted for righteousness sake. They are persecuted because of how they live, not because they were rude or insensitive or judgmental or thoughtless or obnoxious. It's because of Jesus Christ and their life, and it just bothers people how they're living. Our society is trying to maintain a unity in the midst of this rapid transformation. The unifying principle for the Romans was emperor. The unifying principle in our days is tolerance. We need to tolerate everyone and all their views. One author wrote this. We are considered tolerant only when we advocate and celebrate, here's this, new understandings of marriage, sexuality, gender, and other issues. Those who refuse to celebrate uh, what they believe God forbids are seen as disloyal to this unifying principle. They are hindering the strength of this new empire that we live in. So if we fail this test of tolerance, we're not going to be good citizens. And that is why people may despise us. We have to be willing as Christians, not because they pat ourselves on the back, because he is worthy of it all. And we want people to know Christ as their savior. We want him to come and trust him. You see, some of the times though, we don't face this mistreatment, this difficulty in things, because our lives are really not that different. There's nothing distinct in us at all. There, there's nothing unique about us at all. And one thing we have to ask is, Am I living according to the word of God? Does God have my time? Does he have my talents and my riches? Or am I just a Sunday only Christian, but he's not the Lord of my life any other time? You see, John 15, 18 says this, the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Now, how can we have joy in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this mistreatment. How do you have joy? Is it joy that I'm talking about? Like you're just so happy. Yes, people are mocking me and making fun of me. This is just amazing. The joy, the pain of being belittled, maybe family members that turn their back on you. No, that's not the case. It, we do rejoice, but we have this joy. We're rejoicing in the reward. And what is this reward? 
Let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The kingdom of heaven, that phrase is used 31 times in the book of Matthew. And it's similar to the phrase kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of heaven is something that is a both and, both here and in the present. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's present now. Luke 17, 20 says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of heaven would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is in the midst of you. It's in the midst of you. It's right now. It's at hand. As Pastor discussed a little bit this morning, Nicodemus was blind and spiritually dead to discerning this spiritual kingdom. You see, but Jesus answered him in John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God is the spirit that is living inside of us and his spirit which is empowering us. So where is this joy that we're finding? This joy that we're finding is we are God's children. We are a part of his family. There is a future tense kingdom of heaven, but his kingdom of heaven lives within us now. And God has performed this miracle to give joy to people in the midst of difficulty. Acts 5.41 says this, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 2 Corinthians 8 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and the extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. You see, this joy is indescribable because the Spirit is working inside of us. Now, what does it mean to live forever under this heavenly rule of God? Well, when you go through the Beatitudes, uh, the seven other that are before that, you'll see what it means. We're going to experience God's comfort. Verse 4, they shall be comforted. We will be co-owners of the whole world. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. We will be satisfied with righteousness, living holy lives. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We will be shown mercy. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. We shall see God. Verse 8, they shall see God. We will be part of God's family. Verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. We are in the presence of God. That is where we find our joy in the midst of this. And then also, and the teens can tell you, from time to time, I show them testimonies of the global church and what other people are facing for their uh, living for Jesus Christ. This morning, one of our projects we did was we wrote letters to the persecuted church people as we watched testimony because I want to remind them and myself that I always need a dose of perspective. Too often, I complain about difficulties and hardships in life, and I need to just be reminded, me in my house with my AC in the comfort, me right here preaching freely, have so much freedom, and yet my other brothers and sisters in Christ face so much torment for being followers of Jesus Christ. 
This morning, we heard a testimony of an Iranian family who they were persecuted. You see, what happened is they they got saved because God, um, through the prayers of other people, uh, neighbors, uh, healed their daughter. And they came to find Christ, the husband and wife and their two daughters. One day, what happened was they... um, the door was a bang on the door. A guy said he was from the post office, but he wasn't. He was from the secret police, and they entered the house, and they ransacked the house looking for Christian material, ripping through photos because they wanted to see if they could find any other Christians that were there in Iran. And so they had the wife call the husband on the phone, calls the husband on the phone. They said his name was Tahir, and he came rushing back to the house, and they said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. So they took him to jail. Because he was a Muslim convert from Christianity, the death penalty was what he should face. You see, what happened, uh, and the story goes on a little bit, is he's in jail, and one of the guards evilly says to him, because he's in prison with murderers and rapists, and he says, do you want your wife and daughters to be here? That is what Christians are facing. Thankfully, um, through prayer, uh, his husband and wife said, will you renounce your faith? And he told her they got to pray together before he met the judge again. And he said, no, they, w- they would live for him. They would honor him. And so miraculously, the judge let them go for free. And the thing that was crazy and that stuck out to me and one of our leaders was when they got back home, they continued to worship the Lord and minister to other people. I was just touched by it so much that they surrender all, even if it costs them. Why? Because here's the thing. They recognize that it costs Jesus so much. It costs our sacrifices nothing compared to what he has done on our behalf. And so how can we rejoice in the midst of persecution We can do this because we know we have a great reward in heaven and we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have demonstrated to us in America what it means to live on fire for God even in the midst of difficulties. So my prayer for you all and for our teens is that they're not gonna allow friends, popularity, sports, job advancement get in the way of them following Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. They would follow him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength because he's worthy of it all. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, for all that you have given to us. We are so undeserving of it, Lord, and yet you have poured out your love on us. Uh, Lord, we just are so grateful again for the teens and how they serve tonight. And I pray that as a church family, we can come alongside of them and encourage them to stay uh, faithful to you, to hold fast to their faith, Lord, and that they would grow in their love and understanding of you. In your name, amen.